0: 1 Corinthians 14, 13 to 25. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray. Excuse me, starting in verse 12. Let me start in verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than ten thousand words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters... He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you speak to us. We're grateful that we have a book where you not just spoke one time, a long time ago, but where you speak. We believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. And so this text for us this morning, it is your God-breathed word to us. And it is profitable for us. And so I pray that you would Cause us to benefit greatly today from this passage, from your word. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and be our primary teacher, that our hearts would be opened, that our minds would be opened, that as the psalmist prays, you would open up our eyes, that we would see wondrous things in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Isn't being a Christian the most amazing thing? It is absolutely the greatest reality in the universe. And um, often, especially if you've been in church for any length of time, we lose sight of this. But it is astounding to be able to be a Christian. Christians believe that the Father, that God the Father chose them before the foundation of the world, predestined them billions and billions and billions of years ago. Actually, even further back than that, in eternity past, loved them and chose them to be his children. It's amazing. One time I was talking to Silas and I said, do you know how long God has loved you? He said, how long? Because I, I think he has a simple but real faith in Christ. He said, how long? I said, forever. He's just like, I don't even know what that means. But for Christians, we believe that God has loved us forever. To be a Christian is is to be someone who has been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus. As Reed said, as we sung about in so many of our songs, but our sins being removed as far as the east is from the west, the wrath of God against us was quenched in Jesus so that there's no longer any for us anymore, ever. Ever that is amazing to be a christian is someone who is indwelt by the spirit of god now in fact galatians 4 says that god has sent the spirit of adoption into our hearts so he is the holy spirit he's the spirit of adoption so he makes real to us this reality that we belong to god we are in god's family and we are in god's family forever he does not let any of his children go The Holy Spirit has come and sealed us as part of God's family. And now that we're part of God's family, the Holy Spirit puts us to work. Now, we're, we don't work in order to become part of the family, but now that we actually are part of the family, by God's grace alone, he puts us to work. He puts us to work to love and bless and be outward focused and serve and minister to others. It's amazing. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that we are God's workmanship, we are his handiwork, created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So God has good works for us to do. God has work for us to do, not to earn anything from him, but because he has already set his affections and his love and lavished his grace upon us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us for the work that God has for us. He gives us abilities. He gives us power. He gives us strength. He gives us what Paul calls gifts. The word gift that's used many times in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 is the word charisma. it's, It's from the same word that we get the word grace from. So these are grace gifts. These are gifts that we haven't earned. We haven't done anything to deserve them. God gives them to us so that we can be part of building up the body of Christ. These gifts are not just things from the Holy Spirit. We talked about this uh, maybe five or six weeks ago. They're not just like things. It's not like a gift under the present that's over there that God gives us. But these gifts are, Paul calls them, manifestations of the Spirit. So they're actually ways that the Holy Spirit comes to us and works in us and through us for the benefit of others. Of all the churches in the New Testament era, the church at Corinth had been richly blessed. I mean, richly blessed with these gifts of the Holy Spirit, with, with this charisma. In 1 Corinthians 1, seven, Paul says, you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. You have all of them. They're all active among you. But this church was severely lacking in maturity. So they had all the gifts, little maturity. In fact, Paul says at one place, I think it's in chapter 3, he says, I couldn't speak to you like spiritual people. Because you weren't. You were not spiritually mature. And so this church, which is rich in spiritual gifts, yet lacking in maturity, needs plenty of correction. And 1 Corinthians 14 deals most, mostly or almost exclusively with two gifts, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. And Paul kind of covers the same ground more than once. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to look at the correction Paul offers to the Corinthians that applies not only specifically to tongues and prophecy, but I think also applies to all the spiritual gifts in general. I kind of want to look at this from a a slightly different vantage point. We're We're going to look at tongues and prophecy, but this applies to all the spiritual gifts in general. There are three things Paul addresses in these 13 verses. And it says, first, the primary motivation in seeking the gifts. We've already seen that. We are all commanded to earnestly desire spiritual gifts. I hope that that landed on you or has over the weeks that we've covered that. We are all called to earnestly desire, but Paul here addresses the motivation for seeking those gifts. The second thing he addresses is he wants to give them a more mature understanding of the power of gifts, And specifically, tongues and prophecy, the the power negatively and positively, power to do great good and power to do harm. And then the third thing Paul wants to address is the ultimate aim of the gifts. So We're just going to look at these one at a time. First, the primary motivation in seeking the gifts, and it's this, is to serve others. We ought to seek after the gifts. We ought to seek to be empowered and strengthened by the Holy Spirit, not for our own gratification or for goosebumps or for giggles or anything like that. We ought to seek these things for the benefit of serving others. A person who has been saved by sheer grace... From God, demonstrated through Jesus Christ, and is now indwelt by the Holy Spirit, will be eager for the gifts of the Holy Spirit in order to use them to serve others. And Paul states his case in verse twelve, and then draws several conclusions in verses thirteen to nineteen. Here is what he says in verse twelve: So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit or for the gifts of the Spirit, strive. To excel in building up the church. Since you are eager for these gifts, strive to excel in building up the church. See, there was a problem. The church at Corinth, they were eager for these gifts, but they strove to excel in building up themselves. They use these gifts more for self-aggrandizement or self-gratification rather than being outward-focused and realizing the motivation is to build up the church. It's to strengthen other people with these gifts. The church at Corinth did have an eagerness for the gifts of the Holy Spirit, which is awesome, right? He says, he recognizes this, and he says, since... You are eager for manifestations of the Spirit. It goes back to what Paul said uh, earlier when he talks about that the gifts are manifestations of the Holy Spirit. He says, since you are eager for these things, he assumes that they have a certain level of eagerness for the gifts. I think he has good evidence for that. Do you? Do we have an eagerness Do we seek the Holy Spirit and his strength and maybe even specific gifts? I would love if there were people laboring in prayer that God might give them or others in the church gifts of healing or the gift of prophecy in order to strengthen the body. The problem in Corinth was that they did not have a corresponding passion to build up the church. They didn't have a corresponding passion to see other people strengthened and helped and and encouraged. The problem Paul saw in this church was an, an inward turning desire to gratify self, not an outward facing striving to strengthen others. Here listen to these words again. You have an eagerness for manifestations of the Spirit. And he says, Since you do, listen to this, strive to excel in building up the church. Is strong language. Strive. Strive <clears throat> the word comes from the Greek word zeteo. I mean it's a very strong word meaning to crave. Ever crave something? I sometimes crave. I, I mean, the other night we had this Oreo cookie dessert with like this butterscotch stuff. I mean, like I crave if I know I'm having that, I if I know that's on the menu for dessert, I crave that. Ever crave something? Paul says, "Strive, crave." Means to crave. Means to seek something in order to actually find it. It means even to demand something from someone. This is strong language. Now, there are times, there are times to strive in the Christian life. Okay? Now, we do not strive for forgiveness. We do not strive for grace. We do not strive in order to earn God's love and favor. That is given freely through Jesus Christ, and it's only given freely. But there are things we are to strive for. This is one of them. Strive. But he doesn't stop there. Strive to what? Strive to excel. Strive to excel. Strive to abound, to overflow in building up the church, in serving others. We rest in the finished work of God through Jesus Christ, but if we are striving up to, to build, we are striving to build up our brothers and sisters in Christ, that is really good. God loves that. He loves to, I love like Romans 12. It says this one phrase that says outdo one another in showing honor. What if, what if we were seeking to outdo one another in excelling to build up the church? And there just was a whole bunch of people thinking, what can I do like, I can't sleep at night until I think of more things I can do to build up my brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what Peter says in 1 Peter 4:10. "As each one has received a gift, use it." The New American Standard Bible says, Employ it, put it to work. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace." And then it goes on to say, let him who speaks speak, as it were, the very utterances of God. Let him who serves serve with the strength that God supplies so that in all things, God is glorified through Jesus Christ. If you have been saved through faith in Jesus Christ alone, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. He's in you. And you have been gifted. Use what you've been given to serve one another. So that's Paul's... Right? That's, that's, what, that's the motivation of seeking the gifts is that we might serve others. And then Paul draws several conclusions. Draws conclusions. I don't want to say several. Uh, regarding the gifts of prophecy and tongues in verses 13 to 19. And here's basically what he says. Unintelligible speech does not instruct the mind, tongues, okay, unintelligible speech, tongues, uninterpreted tongues, does not instruct the mind and therefore does not serve those who hear. And so it has a limited benefit in the church. I say limited because Paul clearly says, if you don't have, an, if you don't have interpretation, you can speak to God, And it builds up yourself. That's good. But it has a limited benefit in the church because it doesn't benefit anybody else. But Paul goes on to say in intelligible speech, namely prophecy, speaking in English so people can understand, words from God, they instruct the mind and therefore they serve those who hear. So let me just... Let me just walk through verses 13 to 17 very briefly. See Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. One who speaks in a tongue, if you speak in tongues, you ought to pray that you can interpret so that you can benefit people here at church. You can benefit yourself by yourself. Amen. Or quietly, you and God, praise God. But you ought to pray that you may interpret. Now, just a side note. I think this verse proves that we don't just get one gift. I've heard people say, you get one gift, and that's your gift for life. Paul here says if you speak in tongues, you should actually pray for the other gift that you can interpret. So if you speak in tongues, you should pray that you may interpret. Why? Because then it can benefit others. For if I pray in a tongue, verse 14, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do then? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing praise with my mind also. So Paul says, if, if you speak in tongues, you should pray that you may interpret. Otherwise, you're just, you're praying with your spirit, but your mind is unfruitful. You might be singing praise to God, but others can't understand. And so for the benefit of others, We should seek interpretation or we should speak to God in our prayer language, if you will, but then speak to others so they can understand. Paul goes on to say in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. You know what I think Paul's saying here? In church, when we're gathered together, we ought to speak to one another in language so we can understand and so that we can say amen. Isn't that what he's saying? Whether it's giving thanks whether it's praising God in worship and singing, whether it is in prayer, whether it is speaking a word of encouragement to somebody or reading a Bible verse, we ought to speak to one another and everyone here can be used in this way, various ways, but we ought to do so in such a way that people hear and understand and say, amen. The word amen is a great word. It's used many times. Uh, Jesus uses this word many times, but he, he, it's usually translated truly, truly. The word amen means true. That is true or so be it or may it be so. So we want to speak in such a way that when we're gathered together, that those who hear us understand and could give a hearty amen to it. Verses 18 and 19 might, in my view, be the most important verses in the Bible on tongues. That might be an overstatement, but let me read it and I'll explain what I mean. Here's what 18 and 19 says. I thank God, this is the Apostle Paul, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. This is the Apostle Paul speaking to a church that loved the gift of tongues. And Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Isn't that amazing? The Apostle Paul, who wrote like half the New Testament. Smart guy. Spoken tongues a lot. He says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And yet, because there's a limitation to the value of it in the gathering of God's people, he says, nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. The value of tongues, Paul clearly states. He says, I praise God. I think speaking in tongues more than all of you. B- to build up himself, to encourage his own heart, to speak to God. But then he says, but when we're gathered together. So I would rather say Jesus Christ died for sinners than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. So Paul says, speaking far fewer words with your mind when you're gathered with other believers in order to instruct them is far better. The word instruct here, I <clears throat> found it interesting, it's the Greek word "catecheo." It's, it's where we get the word catechism or catechesis. Ever, ever heard of catechizing children? It used to be a practice for Christians for, for centuries it was just a systematic way of teaching your children the truths of the Christian faith. I go through one with, with my kids called New City Catechism. It's kind of updated language and things like that. But it's, I mean, it's, just, it's a way of instructing the mind, laying a foundation. Paul says, "I would rather speak five words to catechize others, to instruct their minds, than ten thousand words." in an unknown tongue. Instructing the mind is really important, isn't it? I mean, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, he says it's, it's the, 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 the renewed mind that brings transformation. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds. So we grow as our minds are renewed. So let me ask you, are you eager for gifts of the Spirit? And if you're not, if you're, if you're kind of passive, you're like, uh eh, then ask God to change your heart. Are you passionately seeking after them? If, if you are, then good. Take the next step and strive to excel in using what you have been given to serve the good of others. Number two, second thing Paul addresses here is he wants to give the church at Corinth, he wants to give them a mature understanding of the power of spiritual gifts, both negative, negatively and positively, to do good and to do harm. That might sound strange, but I think it's, Very instructive, what he tells us here. Paul essentially says, you, talking to the Corinthian church, you need to grow up in your thinking about the gifts of tongues and prophecy, specifically in in relation to the benefit of their proper use and the harm of their improper use. Here's what he says in verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. There it is. He says, guys, you got to grow up. You got to grow up in your thinking. The, the word thinking here conveys much more than just individual thoughts kind of rolling through our head from time to time, right? That's probably not so much thinking. It it, it has to do with the faculty of perceiving and judging right and wrong, good and evil, black and white, light and darkness. Paul says, don't be children in perceiving good and evil. Be mature. Grow up. Really what Paul is saying in this context is, in perceiving and judging how particular gifts should be used, think like a grown-up and the church at corinth really needed this correction. God wants us to think and act like grown-ups. Not little children, I suppose. <clears throat> and I I think that's great. He doesn't want perpetual toddlers running around the church. You know, forty-year-old. You know, forty years. You know, believing in Jesus for forty years and still living and thinking like a toddler. does want us. Doesn't want that. He wants us to grow. Verses twenty-one to twenty-three, Paul shows the Corinthians how they need to grow up in their thinking. And and here's here's the gist of it. And I'm going to just kind of lay it out what I think he's saying, and then go back and show you why I see it that way. Here's what I think Paul is saying, uninterpreted tongues, which is unintelligible speech in the church setting, is a negative sign for unbelievers. It's a sign for them, but it's a negative sign. While, when, when he says unbelievers are outsiders, I think he means non-Christians. While the gift of prophecy used in the church setting or in the church is a sign positively for believers, for Christians. We see this in verse 22. Here's what Paul says Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. So how, do, how, is, how is tongues a negative sign for unbelievers? How is it a sign of something not good for unbelievers? And I think Paul is talking about a legitimate gift, a gift of speaking in tongues, speaking in unknown languages, which is meant to be between us and God unless it's interpretation. Well, first in verse 21, Paul quotes from Isaiah 28. Here's what he says. He says, It's written in the law, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. When he quotes Isaiah 28, he's quoting a judgment passage. Israel is about to be run over by Assyria. Jerusalem is about to be besieged by this people of strange language these foreigners who would speak another language. Then verse 23, I think, makes abundantly clear that tongues' speech to un, or with, with unbelievers gathered with us is a negative sign. Verse 23 says this, Therefore, if the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter... Will they not say that you are out of your minds? And the answer is yes, they will. <clears throat> they will. Say, what is going on here? I think I've come to the wrong place. <laughs> if everyone's speaking in tongues, out loud, Outsiders, unbelievers come in, they're going to think we're nuts. Literally, they're going to think we're mad or raving or insane. In other words, those who are already rejecting Christ, there's a threat of pushing them even further away. Paul says, we've got to grow up in our thinking about this. He's talking to church at Corinth. You've got to grow up in your thinking about this. So uninterpreted tongues, and I want to I want to stress uninterpreted tongues in the church gathering is a negative sign for unbelievers. However, prophecy is a positive sign for believers. So negative sign for unbelievers, positive sign for believers. And again, verse twenty-two. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers, and I think in what way is it a sign? Well. And all that we've seen in 1 Corinthians 14, it's positive, right? Remember chapter, verse 1 of chapter 14. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. The one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to others but to God. The one who prophesies speaks to men or to others for their encouragement their upbuilding, and their consolation. It is for their good. It is a sign of God's blessing. It's a sign of God's presence. It's a sign that God is here, ready and willing to bless and to speak to his people in sweet and precious ways. So Paul says that prophecy is not a sign for unbelievers, but for believers. It's interesting though. I I found this fascinating because he he says it's not a sign for unbelievers but then when you read verses 24 and 25, it's like it seems like it is a sign for unbelievers too. Here's what he says in verses 24 and 25. If all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider comes in, He is convicted by all who are speaking, presumably. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so he falls on his face and worships God and says, God is truly among you. So it's a sign positively, prophecy that is, for believers, but... Wow, if prophecy works this way and unbelievers come in, outsiders come in, and someone gets up and begins to speak a word of prophecy that is from the Lord, it has the power to speak directly to that unbelieving outsider and expose their hearts, their heart, disclosing the secret of their heart Bringing conviction and even repentance and worship and a recognition that God is here. The gift of prophecy has potential for great, great benefit to the church. And I just go back to chapter 14, verse 1. Earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially. That you may prophesy. That's that's a command and an invitation to all of us who belong to Christ. The last thing Paul addresses in these verses is the ultimate aim of the gifts. And again, we see that also in verses 24 and 25. What is the ultimate aim of the gifts? So the motivation is to serve others. We need to to grow, grow up and mature in our way of thinking about how the gifts are powerful for good and harm. But what is the ultimate aim of the gifts? Worship. The ultimate aim of the gifts is worship. Verses 24 and 25, again, unbeliever comes in, prophecies are spoken, he's convicted, he's called to account, secrets of his heart are disclosed. He falls down and begins to worship. When the gifts are generously given as we seek God for them, I think it will will take us in the direction of deeper, more glad-hearted, more free, more reverent, deeper, more profound worship. Be a sense that God is here among us and God is speaking to us and God is working in and through his people here in this place. The Holy Spirit is manifesting himself through more and more people and people are being blessed Encountering God and lifting up their hearts and their minds and their voices in worship. The ultimate aim for Paul in everything is worship. Isn't it? In chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he's writing to the same group of people. After he just just unloads on them the glories of the cross of Jesus Christ, he says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let the one who glories, let the one who exalts, let him exalt in the Lord. In chapter 10, Paul says, he just kind of opens it up. He says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. It's all about worship. Because he's worthy of it. Because that's where we find our, what's the the Westminster Shorter Catechism? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's what we're made for is to glorify God and to worship Him and to enjoy Him. Or maybe just put it this way, to, to go from one degree of glory to another in our worship of God forever and ever. Because He's worthy of it. The ultimate aim of the gifts is worship. Not just singing, by the way, but definitely singing. Lovers of God who love to worship him also love to bring more and more people into the glad worship of him. Lovers of God who love to worship him, they want to see more and more people brought into this glad worship of him. So I say it again, what about you? Do you long for the gifts if if not, ask God to align your desires with him. And add this phrase, Lord do whatever it takes to align my desires with yours. Do whatever it takes. And then seek with great passion, crave the gifts in order to serve others, in order to excel in blessing and encouraging and building up others. Use them in a mature, grown-up way and do it all for the worship and adoration and glory of God through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we are so grateful that you love us And that you want us to be built up. You want us to be spiritually growing and maturing and becoming more like Christ. And the amazing thing is that you you use each one of us that belong to you, you use us in the project of this work in other people's lives, building them up, encouraging them, seeing them more and more sanctified, more and more like the Lord Jesus. What a joy, what a privilege it is. Father, I pray, do whatever it takes to align our hearts with yours, our desires with yours, that we would pursue and desire and long for the gifts of, all of them to be poured out or given to people in the church that we would strive to excel, to build up the church, to bless others, to serve others, that we would grow up in our thinking about how these gifts are powerful for for good and even for harm and that, that you would get all the glory, that we would be drawn into deeper more glorious worship of your great name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Stay seated, please, if you would. We're going to close our service with the Lord's Supper. And I just want to, I want to, I want to leave you with a thought this morning and just piggybacking off of the message. I want to take that, that first thing that Paul addresses, right? The motivation of seeking the gifts is to serve others. What if you find yourself just not wanting to? I don't want to serve others. Maybe it's because you think I don't have time or it seems too demanding. Or maybe it's someone here thinks they don't deserve my service. Wow. Or maybe someone here says they won't receive my service. They won't receive it from me. For whatever reason, you just find yourself stuck in terms of turning outward and looking at others and seeking to serve them. Well, in his teaching on serving in Matthew 20, Jesus said the greatest among you will be a servant. Actually, he says, if you would be great, you must be a servant. And the greatest among you will be slave of all. And then verse 28, it's like he grounds it in something, though. It's like, okay, that just makes me feel more stuck. Then he says this, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, You see, when that lands on us, it changes everything. When the Holy Spirit takes that truth and drives it deep into our hearts, all of a sudden, all of those excuses and all those what seem to be strongholds, they just, maybe not instantly, but begin to be pushed out by this wonderful truth. Let me just very quickly, phrase by phrase, he came not to be served, but to serve. There's a- ever anyone who deserved to call the shots and say, you serve me. It was the high king of heaven, Jesus Christ himself. And yet he came not to be served, but to serve. Remember John 13? After dinner, he put on, took, out his, took off his outer garment, put on this, this apron thing, and sat down and began to wash his disciples' feet. He came not to be served, but to serve. Next phrase. And to give his life. The word give. It wasn't mainly taken from him. He gave. He gave his life to give. The fact that he give, it is a gift only for the undeserving. If anyone thinks they deserve it, It's not for them. It is a gift for the undeserving. Next phrase, as a ransom. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. His life was the ransom payment. His life was the payment. He he needed to be slaughtered for our sins, and he was. Last phrase, for many. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That word for is so pregnant with meaning. He gave his life as a ransom on behalf of or in the place of many. In other words, Jesus took my place. Jesus took your place. He took what you deserved. You you deserved. And I deserved. To have the wrath of a holy and good and righteous God poured out on us. And yet, his life was given as a ransom for many. Who's the many? Whoever's trusting in him alone for salvation in him alone for salvation so this morning as you take that bread and that little cup of juice hold on to it we're going to take it together But i want you just this phrase he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom